sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the climate, health care and tax package being worked on right now by top Democrats. Also going to be talking about the role of the African continent in geopolitics, specifically in this time of the new Cold War. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, on Friday, the FBI with local police executed multiple raids against the African People's Socialist Party, or the APSP, uh, Uhuru House in St. Petersburg, Florida, and their Uhuru Solidarity Center in St. Louis, Missouri, and at the private residence of APSP Chairman Omali Yeshitela, also in St. Louis. The FBI used flashbang grenades and handcuffed Yeshitela and his wife while their house was raided. The FBI claims that the raids are connected to the federal indictment of a Russian national, Alexander Ionov, alleging that he's been working to spread, quote, Russian propaganda, end quote, in the United States. Well, who is Alexander Ionov, you ask? Ionov is a resident of Moscow who the U.S. Justice Department claims has worked on behalf of the Russian Federal Security Service, or the FSB, to control certain political groups in Florida, Georgia, and California. How does the DOJ claim Ionov controlled those groups? Well, the Department of Justice claims that Ionov took over the California secession movement after Louis Marinelli, the former president of the Yes California Independence Campaign, wrote in a farewell statement that he would withdraw efforts to get the question of secession on California's 2018 ballot. The hashtag CalExit was actually a fringe movement before the 2016 election, but apparently gained steam after Donald Trump won the presidency. But the added attention increased scrutiny on Marinelli's residency and increased what he quite accurately described as anti-Russian hysteria in the United States. Marinelli wrote in his resignation letter that he was moving to Russia because of a dispute with the U.S. government over his wife's immigration status. But the DOJ claims that Ionov continued to run the hashtag CalExit campaign, but their idea of running the campaign consisted of Ionov sending $500, that's it, $500 in support and paying for posters for a hashtag CalExit demonstration outside the California Capitol in Sacramento that was held on Valentine's Day in 2018. But if promoting secession is the U.S. gets you a federal indictment, then I got to ask, when is the Department of Justice going to indict members of the Texas GOP for promoting the secession of Texas? So we should expect a federal indictment for Texas Nationalist Movement President Daniel Miller, who maintains that Texas retains the right to secede any day now, right? 
Another one of the accusations against Ionov is that allegedly on August 13, 2015, he emailed people in the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, a pan-African and socialist group that is part of the African People's Socialist Party, and asked them to create a change.org petition to charge the United States with genocide against African peoples and send it to the U.N. office in New York and to the websites of the White House and change.org. Prosecutors say the petition was created 13 days later and Ionov communicated with whomever he was in contact with at the Uhuru House that the petition had been translated into Russian and shared through Russian outlets. Well, here's the thing. If you recall, we've had Brother Jalil Muntakim, former political prisoner and member of the Spirit of Mandela Coalition, on this show many times. The Spirit of Mandela Coalition formed an international tribunal which convened on October 23rd to the 25th, 2021, to hear evidence regarding human rights abuses committed by the United States against black, brown, and indigenous people. The panel of jurists that heard and examined the evidence in the proceedings was an independent body made up of legal scholars, human rights advocates, and activists, and community leaders. And they followed international criminal law on genocide and other instruments and found the U.S. government and its subdivisions guilty of genocide and gross human rights violations. Their executive summary verdict and report with the detailed indictment can be found at tribunal2021.com slash news. But most importantly, though, The guilty verdict from the Spirit of Mandela's Coalition's International Tribunal in 2021 is a renewal of sorts of the original 1951 petition to the United Nations presented by William L. Patterson, who was the national executive director of the Civil Rights Congress, In the document, which is literally called We Charge Genocide, the Crime of Government Against the Negro People, the case is made to the United Nations that, quote, here we present the documented crimes of federal, state, and municipal governments in the United States of America, the dominant nation in the United Nations, against 15 million of its own nationals, the Negro people of the United States. These crimes are of the gravest concern to mankind. The General Assembly of the United Nations, by reason of the United Nations Charter and the Genocide Convention itself, is invested with power to receive this indictment and act on it, end quote. The charge of genocide was made against the United States government in 1951, and the spirit of Mandela Coalition simply renewed that charge with more evidence of ongoing crimes in 2021. But the FBI and the DOJ are claiming that Alexander Ionov and Russian influences the region black radical organizers created a change.org petition to charge the U.S. with genocide. Okay. Federal prosecutors also accuse Ionov of so-called machinations in a pair of local elections in St. Petersburg, Florida in 2017 and 2019, but they notably claim that Ionov continued to push the Kremlin's line through his Florida contacts in the early stages of Russia's war on Ukraine. That's what they say in the indictment, falsely claiming that's what the indictment says, quote, anybody who supported Ukraine was also supporting Nazism and white supremacy, end quote. That was directly from the indictment. 
Well, there's the key to this whole thing, y'all. None of this, neither the indictment against Alexander Ionov nor the violent raids against the APSP properties have anything to do with any actual crimes. This is all about two things, criminalizing those who do not support the U.S., EU, and NATO's evil proxy war using Ukraine against Russia, and silencing black radicals once again using the convenient cover of, quote, malign Russian influence, just like the U.S. did when it literally targeted, jailed, blackballed, and deported black radical and other left activists during the McCarthy era in the 1950s. The Black Alliance for Peace sums this up perfectly. They say, we believe this repression to be a hysterical response to the United States' loss of legitimacy in the context of the deepening crisis of capitalism and U.S. global hegemony, the unleashing of policing and counterintelligence forces domestically, and increased militarism and warmongering abroad in the name of national security are the only avenues left to the U.S. ruling class that is engulfed in an irreversible economic crisis. They represent the hallmarks of a naked fascism that the U.S. ruling class appears to be increasingly committed to in order to maintain the rule of capital, end quote. The raid on the Uhuru House last Friday was akin to the Palmer raids that began the era of McCarthyism. But this time, let's call this era of fascist oppression in the U.S. by its proper name. Let's call it Bidenism. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Dr. Robert Hockett, Edward Cornell Professor of Law at Cornell University and Senior Counsel for Westwood Capital. Dr. Hockett, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Sean. Great to, great to hear you again. Great to be on with you again, too, Jackie. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Hockett, uh, some top Democrats are, you know, moving to do some uh, work around a climate, health care and tax package, trying to pass it sometime soon. And this is following uh, uh, some secret talks between Senators Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin. And this package is reportedly uh, set to raise around seven hundred and thirty nine billion dollars, which, of course, uh, still seems well shy of the uh, $2 trillion that the Build Back Better plan was uh, seeking to implement for uh, these issues and a number of others that uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and the quote-unquote moderate wing of the uh, Democrat Party uh, was dead set against and really fought pretty harshly. And so I'm just sort of wondering how you're seeing things are playing out at this point. I mean, what's really contained within this package? What do you see as the potential impacts? I mean, do you think it will have the impact that it should. Uh, just uh, how do you see at this point this uh, unfolding, Doctor? 
Sure. Thanks. Thanks, John. I, I think it's um, it's a fine sort of down payment, you might say, on, on the sort of investment that we have to make in transforming the economy and converting it over to a sort of green friendly or environmentally uh, friendly economy, as well as a more worker friendly and manufacturing <clears throat> friendly economy. The original ambition, as you'll recall, was uh, to spend nearly two trillion dollars uh, on that kind of transformation. And it's now, of course, scaled back to about a quarter uh, of that. Uh, that means it's, of course, quite small compared to the original ambition. Um, and, and in that sense, we all you know, ought to sort of, I suppose, temper or curb our enthusiasm, as it were. On the other hand, uh, that, that being said, it is nevertheless, I think, a significant you know, sort of first start. It's a good down payment. It does amount to uh, more spending on the climate than any country has ever uh, done before. So it's historically important. I think probably the primary importance, however, uh, is that when things begin to improve, economically, partly visibly in consequence of this legislation, that should open the door, I think, to, to, to more, right? The doomsayers will be even more fully proved wrong uh, about this kind of approach. Um, and then that will, I think, open the door to more ambitious legislation uh, in the coming uh, months and years. And you know, Dr. Hockett, um, I I think it's great that the Biden administration is doing something and that this deal, which was crafted in secret, and apparently the Republicans are pretty mad about it, that they didn't know that this was going on. And and I, I, I guess I get why they're mad, because they don't want to spend any money on people any more than really a lot of Democrats do. But I think my problem with this deal is that the revenue, the $739 billion, will come from a 15 percent corporate minimum tax and enhanced tax enforcement efforts at the Internal Revenue Service. Now, obviously, I have no problem with the 15 percent corporate minimum tax. I think it should be twice as high. But I'm very suspicious, extremely dubious about this enhanced tax enforcement effort part of this uh, revenue deal, because that speaks to me just giving the IRS more uh, weaponry, more uh, ability to go after regular taxpayers, because we know that the rich have plenty of ways that they can get out of paying their fair share of taxes. And I don't see these enhanced enhanced tax enforcement efforts um, shaking out any differently under this scheme. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point. The thing is, in theory, it ought to be good in the sense that, of course, the IRS is just enforcing the law. And if you're denying it the funding to enforce the law, then you might as well not even have the law. And that's, you know, kind of the usual argument that one makes then against Republican objections to uh, giving the IRS a, a larger budget. But as you say, as a practical matter, the IRS uh, has had a, a longstanding tendency simply to audit and go after those who it sees as sort of easy defendants to go up against. Uh, And as you noted, the ultra wealthy tend to have lots of ways to sort of drag things out, delay, um, and fight against enforcement. And oftentimes the IRS will sort of go for the low hanging fruit uh, in consequence of that, meaning that, you know, you end up having a kind of a, a regressive effect on the actual tax take by doing this. I think the only way to combat that, or at least the best way to combat that, um, is for the Biden administration to sort of try to set a tone 
in the IRS through the Treasury Department, which it's a branch of, saying that, look, you guys, we want you to go after the big time tax cheats. We want you to go after the oligarchs, uh, not the small fry, um, and to sort of oversee things um, a bit more carefully than they have been doing. Um, whether we can actually realistically hope for that from Biden or from Secretary Yellen is, of course, another question. But it seems to me that we ought to be demanding it, particularly now that they're going to you know, be upping the ante in this particular way. Yeah. And of course, doctor, I mean, this is all happening within the context of uh, rising inflation in the United States. We saw an unprecedented uh, second rate hike from the Federal Reserve and things like this. And the overall uh, economic picture of the U.S. just uh, doesn't seem to be very good right now. I mean, there are fears of a recession. There are others who will tell you that we're in a recession already at this very moment. And uh, I'm just curious if you see this proposed uh, uh, package factoring or or impacting that aspect of things economically, uh, uh, you know, in one way or the other. Yeah. So there's there's an interesting, I think, um, similarity or even a sort of a structural similarity between the, I think, what the right answer to that observation is on the one hand and the answer that I I gave to uh, Jackie's question a moment ago uh, on the other hand. And it's this, there's the potential Uh, for something really good to happen here, but it's not going to be automatic. Um, It requires kind of an, it'll require an ongoing determination on the part of the administration to get it right. And here's what I mean by that in this particular context. In theory, it is possible for the CHIPS Act and for this act between the two of them to help revitalize the manufacturing sector of the American economy, and especially to do so in the realm of green-friendly or eco-friendly technologies and industries, right? In other words, it's possible for the U.S. to leapfrog way out front again worldwide with respect to semiconductor manufacturing, with respect to solar panel manufacturing, with respect to windmill manufacturing, and so forth, to put the, the U.S. sort of out front front again where, when it comes to sort of cutting edge products being manufactured. And that in turn should be good for working folk because a, a large manufacturing base tends to drive wages upward both in the manufacturing sector and in adjoining uh, sectors. So in theory, it could work well. But once again, that's not going to be automatic. It's going to be critical for the administration to see to it that the firms that are benefiting by this legislation are engaging in fair hiring practices um, to ensure that they're complying with labor law including uh, the law that guarantees the right of workers to organize uh, and so forth, right? So this could end up being just a gift, yet another gift to corporate America if we don't stay on top of it, or it could end up being, again, transformative in a very salutary way if we do stay on top of it, just like the tax changes um, can be very helpful if we uh, stay on top of the way in which uh, the enforcement happens. But, you know, Dr. Hockett, I I think it is important to point out that there could be, and I'm glad that you are pointing out, there could be some good things that come out of this bill. And I do think uh, the effect that it could have on health care and prescription drugs in particular, even though for us it's not, you know, the the full uh, uh, Medicare for all universal health care that we absolutely need, and we needed it yesterday, but it could provide some relief in in the issue of health care and prescription drugs for Americans. So what what is the silver lining here that people should be paying attention to? 
I think here too, Jackie, it's kind of, uh, it's the precedent uh, and the sort of first step sort of character of, of this thing more than it is the thing in itself. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's probably helpful for us to remember that all, pe- all of our peer jurisdictions have governmental agencies that negotiate with drug manufacturers for prices. And in consequence, you know, they use the full power basically of the public sector so that there's a kind of an equality in the bargaining positions of the two parties. Um, That is to say the drug manufacturers on the one hand and the public on the other when it comes to negotiating prices. The U.S. is the only country that doesn't do that and hasn't done it for decades in the way that our peers have. And in consequence, of course, it's much cheaper uh, to purchase essential drugs in other jurisdictions outside of the U.S. What we see happening now then is for the first time and finally at long last um, there's an authorization for the federal agencies to do that negotiating to get those better prices but once again to kind of link it up with your earlier question Jackie on tax enforcement you know and uh, to link it up with what I was just noting about manufacturing again it's going to require a kind of ongoing vigilance right the authorization of a government agency to negotiate a price is one thing the actual negotiating of that better price and doing so you know with a with a real strong uh, attitude and a forceful attitude I should say and with an eye to the betterment of the condition of Americans um, is, you know, again, not automatic. Um, And so a kind of an ongoing vigilance and ongoing energy is going to be required. Now, if that energy is indeed expended and drug prices start coming down, then you can imagine the electorate responding, saying, hey, we kind of like this. This isn't just like some sort of objectionable form of socialism. Whatever it is, if it's a socialism, it's a good form uh, or it's something else. But whatever it is, we like it. Let's have more of that, please. And that's, I think, the real key. If we can keep that vigilance with respect to all of these aspects of the legislation, if we can make sure that it is implemented well and that it's carried out well, then I think it's simply going to whet the appetite for more. And we might finally become a somewhat more civilized society. Yeah, well, well, I agree that uh, the public would likely respond very well to uh, that kind of thing, Dr. Hockett. And I tend to think that uh, the Democrats may be feeling the heat as we draw uh, ever closer to November to the midterms. And then, of course, in a couple of years will be the next uh, uh, presidential election. And, you know, so far to this point in the Biden administration, it seems like there haven't been uh, very many moments like that where there's a ton of, you know, benefits for the rank and file person in this country that they can really attribute to uh, the administration's policies, which not only I think contributes to uh, a worsening of the social situation here in the U.S., but uh, also I think just does not paint Biden and the Democrats in, you know, a positive light or put them in a good position to retain power to, to say the very least. And so, you know, I'm always sort of looking at the, uh, the, the social fallout from a, a some of these decisions, particularly uh, as we've been talking about the economic situation here in the U.S. with rising prices, stagnated wages and and things like this sort of continue to exert pressure over people here in this country. And I mean, it it just seems to me that, uh, you know, uh, like you say, these these things sort of aren't automatic. But I do feel like maybe even more drastic uh, sorts of legislation is really needed to kind of correct a number of these things, you know, not so much 
necessarily for uh, uh, the health of the Democratic Party as an institution, though, you know, one would think they'd be interested in that. But really just in thinking about the uh, the plight of the people in this country who, for a number of reasons, are watching their uh, conditions worsen with uh, not a ton of solutions, generally speaking, coming from those in power. At least that's, you know, how I see it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I'm quite with you there. I mean, there's been, it's been sort of an interesting trajectory, it seems to me, when it comes to uh, the Joe Biden and the Joe Biden administration's sort of status uh, or stature uh, within the, the sort of mindsets of, or the impressions of, of those of us on the sort of progressive side of things. Um, back in 2019, I, like I think many people uh, was was furious that Biden was even daring to run. It seemed to me that, you know, this ought to belong almost as a matter of actual entitlement uh, to a much more progressive candidate in the Democratic Party, given that we've already been there, done that um, with massive failure in consequence with uh, the sort of neoliberal experiment um, on the part of the Democrats uh, that we associate sort of with the Clinton years, especially, but even even going before that and certainly after that. Um, and so um, the, when Biden became the nominee, I think he sort of pleasantly surprised a lot of us when all of a sudden it looked like he was going to try to be half Biden uh, pre-2019, but also half Bernie or half Elizabeth Warren or half Nina Turner you know, on the other side. Um, and so I think a lot of us got our hopes up. We were thinking, well, you know, half a loaf here is kind of literally half a loaf is, is probably better than none. And it's certainly more than we might have expected. But then all of a sudden, you know, things began to stall within about six or seven months of his administration. And it began to feel more like a quarter of a loaf or even a tenth of a loaf at, at best. Now I think maybe we're up to a quarter or one third, <laughs> yeah, which is sort of better than we probably expected before Biden even entered the race, but considerably, you know, worse uh, than what we were kind of beginning sanguinely uh, to hope at the end of 2020 when Biden won. So where things are now, I think it's maybe just as you suggest, it's probably we might be partly moving back in the right direction, thanks to the pressures that are being felt as the midterms uh, approach. Or I don't know, maybe Joe Manchin has begun to sort of see the light to some extent. It's hard to see. It's hard for me to really determine what it is that's brought a little bit of new hope here, what has instigated these changes. But I guess I'm just sort of happy that there's at least something uh, happening here. And now I'm sort of mostly concerned about how to consolidate it and then go further. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Hockett, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the role of the African continent in the new Cold War. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Abayomi Azikiwe, editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. And 
Uh, Abayomi, the African continent has historically and continues to be uh, a very important factor in uh, the realm of geopolitics. And I think today in the 21st century, specifically giving uh, many of African countries relationship to the governments of uh, Russia and China and how that is caused for more than a bit of consternation in the metropoles of the West, I think, are these sort of primary issues uh, uh, that the continent is facing today, at least in that broad sense. And I think this is evidenced by the fact that, you know, officials from uh, France, the United States and Russia either have or are planning to make uh, uh, tours or political trips to different parts of the African continent towards just these ends. And you recently published a piece about this for uh, Popular Resistance entitled Africa Remains at the Center of a 21st Century Cold War. And I was just wondering if you could break down how you're seeing the the different dynamics between uh, these African governments and uh, uh, the governments of uh, uh, Russia, Western Europe, and the United States. When the uh, first Cold War uh, evolved uh, after World War II, uh, there was the issue of the growing influence of the uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. And then, of course, there were revolutions in uh, Vietnam and the North in Vietnam and also in North Korea in uh, 1945. And then, of course, in 1949, there was the uh, Chinese Revolution. So a large uh, proportion of the world's population uh, was looking uh, towards a socialist uh, orientation. This was clearly a threat. Uh, to the post-World War II political construct that the United States had envisioned. Uh, They emerged as the undisputed uh, leader of the imperialist world after 1945. However, they had to deal uh, with the Soviet Union. Uh, They had to deal with the uh, Democratic People's Republic of Korea after 1948 and uh, the Democratic uh, Republic of Vietnam. Now, At the same time, there was a growth in the national liberation movements, the anti-colonial struggle throughout Asia and Africa and the Caribbean. And at the same time, there was the burgeoning uh, civil rights and black power movements uh, in the United States. So the United States was in a uh, life and death struggle uh, for uh, dominance uh, over uh, the international community. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, in 1991 and uh, its allies a couple of years earlier, uh, the United States looked at the world as being unipolar, uh, that uh, they would have hegemonic uh, domination over the entire globe. However, we saw the growth of China. Uh, we saw the emergence of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and we see the reemergence of the Russian Federation uh, as a world power. So this, of course, has fueled what many speculate uh, to be a new Cold War uh, in the 21st century. Africa was important in the initial Cold War after World War II uh, because the U.S. was in alliance with all the colonial powers uh, that uh, had suppressed Africa for many years. And the U.S. itself was built up uh, through internal colonialism. Uh, through the mass uh, exploitation and enslavement of African people and indigenous people and other oppressed groups. And at the same time, uh, you had a situation uh, where people inside the United States, particularly uh, African-Americans, were demanding uh, equality and self-determination. So 
today, uh, with the decline of U.S. influence, uh, looking at the uh, failure of so many wars uh, that have been carried out, uh, whether it's in uh, the, the Korea uh, during the early 1950s, talk about Vietnam uh, during the 1960s and 1970s, uh, Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, all these interventions have been abysmal failures uh, for U.S. imperialism. They had to leave Afghanistan last year. Uh, so the U.S. at this point uh, wants to reexert uh, its world influence. And Africa, of course, uh, being the treasure trove of mineral resources, uh, potential for hydroelectric power, and other uh, resources, agricultural power as well, uh, want to uh, dominate the African continent. Yet the U.S. does not have the resources to do so uh, based upon its own internal uh, domestic uh, economic and military policies. A lot of money is spent on military expenditures. A lot of money has been transferred uh, from working people and poor people uh, to the upper classes, particularly in the financial sector. Uh, so right now, this leaves it wide open for the Russian Federation, uh, for Turkey, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and also uh, for China uh, to enhance their influence uh, uh, throughout the world. So at this stage, uh, the U.S. Uh, is quite concerned about the non-support and uh, the continued demand for a diplomatic solution uh, to the war in Ukraine. At the same time, uh, China is telling the United States to stay out of the South China Sea, uh, to stay out of the uh, Taiwan Strait, and uh, they actually are risking, uh, meaning the Biden administration, a third world war. Uh, that would have nuclear uh, dimensions. So this is a very dangerous situation, and I think the African Union has taken the correct position, calling for a diplomatic solution uh, to the situation uh, in Ukraine. Yeah, Abayomi, and the fact that uh, the Biden administration is so concerned about uh, the position that many African countries uh, have taken in not supporting uh, the U.S. in this proxy war in Ukraine uh, has concerned the Biden administration so much that uh, Joe Biden announced that he would host a summit with African leaders at the White House in December. But I'm wondering if that is really, in the face of everything you just said, really too little, too late, specifically since Putin has already been in talks with um, several members of the African Union. Foreign Minister Lavrov visited four African states during his tour. Um, and, and we always talk about uh, the Belt and Road initiatives that are going on on the continent in which China is investing a lot of money in building up infrastructure in many African nations. I mean, the United States seems to be, uh, to me, to be responding too little, too late to have any influence on the continent, even as, I mean, they're still trying to gen up support for this ridiculous and destructive proxy war. Yes. And uh, the African Union has taken the position uh, that they will not support uh, this hot war in Eastern Europe. And uh, they forced the European Union, uh, that is the Biden administration, to go along with the sanctions. But we saw just last week uh, that uh, the European uh, Commission announced that they're asking people to cut back on gas consumption. And winter uh, was only a few months away. How are they going to survive if uh, many of the countries in Europe are dependent upon uh, natural gas uh, from the Russian Federation and also dependent upon oil uh, 
uh, from the Russian Federation. So they're in a very difficult uh, situation, and they're looking uh, to try to curry favor uh, with Africa. They sent uh, Mike Hammer, who is the special uh, envoy uh, from the State Department to the Horn of Africa. Yet this is just stalking uh, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of the Russian Federation, uh, who was in Ethiopia and several other countries, uh, making preparations for the Russia-Africa summit that's going to be held uh, in November and December of this year. Uh, also, France, Emmanuel Macron, uh, visited uh, several African countries uh, this last week as well. So we have France, we have the United States, and uh, we have uh, Russia all uh, vying uh, for influence on the African continent. And I don't believe uh, that uh, the United States, uh, when they have these international summits, there are certain countries that they will not invite. Uh, for example, they have not invited uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, and there are other countries on the continent uh, which they won't invite, for example, Eritrea, and possibly uh, Ethiopia uh, may not be invited. Uh, so this is a violation of the African Union protocols, uh, the Southern African Development Community uh, protocols as well in regard to uh, Zimbabwe. So I think uh, this plan uh, for a, a White House-Africa uh, summit will fall flat, uh, quite similar to the way in which uh, the recent Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles uh, failed because uh, several countries refused to participate in that summit. And even the, the leaders who came uh, to Los Angeles uh, were able to view uh, the deteriorating economic situations uh, that exist uh, in the United States. Uh, for example, in Los Angeles, uh, there's a huge uh, homeless problem and uh, people are living on the street and people saw that. Uh, from uh, the Latin American countries when they visited Los Angeles uh, several months ago. Uh, so I think uh, the desperation of the Biden administration is quite evident. Uh, they have continued uh, to make threats against anyone uh, who's questioning uh, what their uh, economic and military policies are in Eastern Europe. And the whole uh, episode involving Nancy Pelosi, uh, who's doing an Asian tour uh, this week, and her threat to visit uh, Taiwan and the response of uh, President Xi Jinping of the People's Republic of China saying that they were playing with fire, that there would be a military response if Pelosi did uh, visit uh, Taiwan, uh, has given pause uh, to the Biden administration because they'll be in a situation where they'll be fighting two wars, uh, a proxy war uh, in Ukraine as, as well as a possible uh, direct war a direct conflict with the People's Liberation Army of China. I don't believe the United States is in, is in any position uh, to fight uh, two wars at the same time, let alone uh, continue uh, the maintenance of the uh, settler colonial apartheid system in Palestine, maintaining troops in Syria and Iraq, and also uh, dealing with proxy wars in Yemen and maintaining uh, uh, sanctions against Cuba and Venezuela. So I think the uh, U.S. imperialist system has overextended itself. And the only real solution uh, for uh, the United States is to change its own policy. But I don't think they are, they are in a position to do that because so much is riding on uh, the role of the military and the role of the financial institutions and in maintaining some semblance of U.S. hegemony internationally. Yeah. And, you know, in your uh, piece, you, you note how uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov 
held this press conference with Ugandan President uh, Uriri Museveni. And uh, he basically made the point that, you know, the enemies of the U.S. government are not the enemies of his country, saying in part, quote, how can we be against somebody who has never harmed us? If Russia makes mistakes, we tell them when they have not made mistakes, we can be against them. Now, you were Museveni, uh, certainly not one of the more progressive leaders on the African continent, to say the very least. But I mean, he's speaking to something that that I feel like has really becoming more and more of a glaring issue for the United United States in the recent period, particularly in the time since uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that's how the U.S. basically continues to ask countries to act against their own national interest simply for the sake of being in league with Washington on these different issues, particularly on the uh, this 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 proxy war in Ukraine, you know what I mean, and that to me it really feels like a, a losing strategy in a sense, and it just straight up does not seem to be working. I, and I mean, I think the same goes for uh, India and, and some other countries that we could name. You know what I mean? And so I feel like this is uh, one of the core contradictions facing the U.S. in this moment vis-a-vis uh, uh, the African continent, Abayomi. And at this moment, it doesn't appear like they really have have any uh, a sort of real uh, strong foreign uh, policy trajectory that that could really resolve that. But I mean, you mentioned the summit of the Americas earlier. And I think if we look at uh, Joe Biden's recent trip to the Middle East as well, it just seems like uh, Washington continues to take one foreign policy loss after another. And so I think it definitely we should be keeping an eye on this upcoming, uh, uh, you know, U.S. Africa summit, like you say, because I think that that could give another indication of uh, just where the U.S.'s uh, standing is on the international scene at this point. Yes, because uh, the government of Uganda under President Uweri Museveni uh, had been a staunch ally of uh, Washington uh, and also the financial institutions that are based uh, in the United States. Uh, Uganda went further than any other country in Africa during the late 1980s and early 1990s and accepting and implementing the so-called structural adjustment programs that were initiated by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Uh, since that time period, there has been economic growth in Uganda. But it's quite interesting uh, that uh, Museveni uh, made such bold statements uh, against uh, the posture of the United States vis-a-vis uh, the situation in Ukraine and also Russia-Africa relations. And I think it typifies uh, the general attitude among the African Union countries. For example, Mackie Saul in Senegal had close ties as well uh, with the United States, even military ties. The U.S. Africa Command uh, had a special relationship uh, with the Mackie Saul government in Senegal. Yet Mackie Saul, who is the chair of the African Union, and uh, Musa Faki Mahatmat, who is the commission chair of the uh, African Union in Ethiopia, both traveled to to Sochi in Russia uh, in June uh, to meet uh, with Vladimir Putin, uh, and they announced uh, the reconvening of the Russia-Africa summit. And at the conclusion of the meeting, they reiterated their formal position that there should be a diplomatic solution uh, to the conflict in Ukraine. This is what the United States does not want to hear. They are continuing the war. They've sabotaged every effort uh, to have any type of diplomatic solution between Russia and Ukraine. 
and even to the point of uh, promoting uh, Zelensky as a Democrat, as a war leader. Uh, they had uh, the first lady of Ukraine on the cover of Vogue magazine uh, last week, uh, looking like a fashion model. Uh, they interviewed her on the BBC uh, last week. Uh, she was looking like a fashion uh, industry executive. So um, they're trying to sell the Zelensky's uh, to the middle class and upper class uh, constituency here in the United States as legitimate leaders, as Democrats, as the only hope for the salvation of democracy in Ukraine. But this is a false narrative. And uh, Africa is not buying it. Even countries like India, which has maintained close ties with both uh, the United States and Russia, are not accepting it either. Uh, so the United States uh, is trying to force the European Union to go along with this, but this is proving disastrous for the European Union as well. So the only solution uh, Biden has is to uh, foster some type of diplomatic solution uh, to this war. But he doesn't see that as a solution right now uh, because uh, they have midterm elections, uh, which are going on this year. And, of course, uh, the status of the Democratic Party is clearly at stake uh, right now in the U.S. Congress as well as the Senate. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Abayomi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about developments inside the Philippines. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Adrian Bonifacio, National Chairperson of Anak Bayan. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Adrian, here recently, a Philippine president, uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., otherwise known as Bong Bong Marcos, uh, gave his first State of the Nation address. And uh, this triggered a reaction of uh, Filipino folks and uh, friends and allies around the world uh, to protest, holding what they called a People's State of the Union address, or PSONA. Now, uh, Marcos's vice president is Sarah Duterte, uh, the daughter of uh, longtime leader, uh, President Rod. Rigo Duterte. And both the Marcos and Duterte families have been just ravaging uh, the, the Philippines and the people of the Philippines for years at this point. And I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, what this administration coming into power could spell out for the people of the Philippines moving forward. Yeah. So, you know, even before that State of the Nation address, uh, Marcos and Duterte had been uh, sitting in office for almost a month. And the, the big narrative coming from the regime is, oh, why are you criticizing him already? Why don't you give the regime a chance? And it's even clear in the less than one month or so in office that there's no chances to be given to them. You know, once they entered in power, they had parties and photo shoots in the presidential palace. Meanwhile, the people have been suffering from the worst inflation rate in over four years. There's been a decline in real wages. And the Philippines is actually saddled with over 200 billion U.S. dollars in debt. 
the people that Marcos has appointed to his cabinet include a very neoliberal economic team that will bring more of the same like infrastructure projects that sunk the Philippines in further debt like during Duterte's administration. There's a very militarist cabinet. Um, there still is no secretary for health despite ongoing pandemic effects in the Philippines. Uh, Duterte Carpio, Sarah Duterte, was appointed as the Secretary of Education. And so, you know, the main policy that she is advocating for is a return to mandatory uh, ROCC, which we know that the Philippine military is some of the worst perpetrators of human rights in the Philippines. And then, you know, one other egregious thing is that Marcos appointed himself as Secretary of Agriculture, uh, which we know that the, the situation of peasant farmers in the Philippines has been one of the biggest problems in the country. Uh, for, you know, since forever, basically. And so Marcos's father, Marcos Sr., did nothing. He uh, worsened the situation of peasants in the Philippines, and Marcos Jr. will be sure to do the same. And that's certainly uh, the effects of the policies of the previous administration that the organizers are raising as the son of the previous uh, dictator uh, are, are sure to continue with $900 million in arms shipped from the United States to the Philippines since 2002, $1.3 billion in security assistance to the country. I mean, what are the issues that people are facing specifically in in relating to the militarism and uh, the violent repression that they know they're going to see under uh, the uh, new Marcos administration. Yeah, you know, that the fact that people are resisting just shows how grave the crisis is, how extreme the crisis is in the Philippines. You know, the, the economic situation is pushing more and more uh, labor to fight back, more and more farm, farmers to fight back more used to fight back, and they're faced with that exact same repression that's funded and bankrolled by the U.S. that you're talking about. You know, um, some things to expect from the militarism. We know that some of the people who are um, helping to guide Marcos Jr. are people like um, Enrile, who helped advise Marcos Sr., of course, one of the architects of martial law uh, back during the um, 70s and 80s under his father. Uh, there are uh, no plans for the Marcos Duterte regime to continue the peace talks with the revolutionary government and revolutionary forces of the Philippines. And instead, they're pushing for things called uh, localized peace talks, which have been um, a rampant opportunity for corruption, for violation of human rights, uh, and for uh, theft of um, peasant lands, theft of indigenous lands. And so some of that militarism is set to continue. Marcos just recently announced that he has no plans to, for the Philippines to rejoin the International Criminal Court, the ICC, which was uh, investigating the tens of thousands of deaths under Duterte's drug war. So we also know that the previous Duterte administration won't be held accountable for any of its human rights violations. In fact, during Marcos's State of the Nation address, he made no mention at all of any of the human rights violations under Duterte or his father, for that matter. Yeah, and I mean, looking at this, uh, this just amazing amount of aid that uh, Washington has sent to the Philippines, as Jackie was noting, since 2002, Adrian, I mean, I have to ask, what, what is the value of the Philippines to the United States government? And, and why do you think it uh, sees it as necessary to provide uh, these kinds of resources to uh, the Philippine government, uh, despite its, you know, frankly, brutal way of of uh, treating uh, the people of that country. Yeah, you know, Biden was the 
first, you know, um, leader to congratulate Marcos. And I think that says a lot about uh, U.S. imperialism, U.S. influence, and U.S. interest in the Asia-Pacific region. We know that the U.S. is trying to um, buy for maintain power and hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region. We know that's why the Philippines has been such a strategic geopolitical location for them and why they continue to funnel um, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to the Philippine government, even though it is uh, clearly violating uh, not just the human rights and people's rights of the Filipino people, but uh, their basic economic rights, uh, pushing them further into poverty. And then it's those same U.S. dollars that are uh, being used for the aerial bombardments, for the, the guns, for the uh, training of uh, security officials there to repress people who are justly rising up. And so it's really because the U.S. has that strategic interest in the region uh, to counter um, China and, of course, with the, the war uh, in the Ukraine, uh, have more um, places to base uh, its operations on that side of the world. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, Joe Biden congratulating Marcos. Um, I'm also put in mind of when, you know, Donald Trump, the previous president, actually congratulated uh, Rodrigo Duterte for his, you know, quote unquote, success on the war on drugs, which, you know, has just been an all out attack on so many people uh, inside the Philippines. And uh, in in sort of considering this uh, in that aspect of things, Adrian, I mean, you know, uh, there was the sort of era of martial law that had happened uh, in the Philippines between, I think, uh, 1972 and 81 that I think also continues to have, you know, ripple effects on uh, the people of the Philippines. And I believe this was under uh, uh, the Marcos uh, regime uh, as this was taking place. And so, I mean, what sort of was that period like uh, uh, in the Philippines and how do you see it uh, perhaps reflected in the ongoing conditions in the country? I mean, the period of martial law was one of the darkest periods in, in Philippine history. There was curtailment of every right possible. People couldn't even gather together. Uh, there was, of course, the political uh, repression. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of people affected by uh, mass arrests, torture, killings. Um, there was a crackdown on activism in general. And then, of course, an anti-communist witch hunt, basically, um, that was, you know, resisted by the people. Um, people didn't just sit back and, and not fight against martial law. So it's both a, a period of great repression, but also a period of great resistance. And I think that carries over to the modern day where, you know, you mentioned the drug wonder Duterte. In many ways, Duterte uh, surpassed some of the things that Marcos Sr. did. And now Marcos Jr. has been trying to cover up, you know, uh, revise history about his father's martial law referring it to as the golden years, referring to, you know, a booming economy. When we know that actually under Marcos's martial law that there wasn't just political repression, but the Philippines, you know, um, sunk so, so deep into debt, debt that we're actually still paying off today. And so uh, that legacy definitely continues today. And this year will actually mark the 50th anniversary of the declaration of martial law in the Philippines. And so uh, Anak Bayan, our uh, broader alliance of national democratic organizations, Bayan USA, will definitely be holding nationwide protests, and we invite um, everyone to join us in, in protesting this current Marcos Duterte regime and everything it stands for. 
Yeah, that's actually the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Adrian, is, you know, the importance of building this uh, uh, anti-imperialist movement uh, around the Philippines to, you know, really uh, fight for uh, uh, the betterment of conditions and treatment of, you know, the people of the Philippines and to try to end the U.S.'s uh, uh, facilitation of that suffering. And so how do you see that movement building aspect of things as being important in this moment? Definitely. You know, um particularly for people in the diaspora and migrant Filipinos. Uh, I mentioned a lot of things about what's happening in the Philippines, which of course affects all of our families directly. We know that the Marcos regime is also trying to um, systematize and further deepen this policy of labor export, which is why there are so many millions of Filipinos abroad, because there's no job creation in the country and they're forced to go overseas. And so building the mass movement against the Marcos Duterte regime uh, will have such material impacts for our diaspora, for our migrants abroad, because we're directly fighting against the policies that will um, that have pushed us out. No, um, you know, in addition to there being the 50th anniversary of martial law uh, in the Philippines this September, Marcos and Duterte have also been invited. Uh, Marcos Jr. and Sarah Duterte have been invited to the United States for several United Nations activities and potentially other diplomatic matters, and so. It's even more important if they step foot inside, uh, you know, the the U.S. that we are there to protest. Uh, we are there to build this mass movement because the fight in the Philippines is also a fight, an anti-fascist fight uh, for the world. Right? We know that if we're fighting against fascism in the Philippines, it can also lead uh, to strengthen other people's movements too that have their own fights against fascism, whether that's here um, in the United States, whether that's in El Salvador. And so as we continue calling on people to be in solidarity with the Philippine movement against fascism, against imperialism, against feudalism, uh, know that it's also part of this bigger uh, worldwide movement against imperialism as well. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, August 1st, 2022. Wake up, wake up. It's the first of the month. And as always, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades. That's y'all to reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary. 
in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, of course, want to note that today is the first day of Black August, a time for folks to sort of rededicate themselves to discipline and to struggle and, of course, to uphold and study and never forget our political prisoners it's not a you know holiday. It's not a celebration. So we don't say happy Black August. It's it's an observance. But I do definitely wish people the best who are engaging with the month in different ways. Also, uh, a bit of sad news to start the hour off today as veteran basketball star Bill Russell uh, has died at the age of 88. Of course, he's best known for his work uh, on the Boston Celtics, Celtics, winning eight straight titles and winning 11 overall during his career. And not only that, he's also known to have faced just virulent racism uh, in his time in Boston, which shows that there's really nothing you can do to to prove yourself to uh, a white supremacy, but also just have the reputation of, you know, generally being a, a good person. And uh, from time to time, being on the right side of things politically. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Ajamu Baraka, national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. Ajamu, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I was happy to be here. And I had a chance to actually meet uh, Brother Bill Russell many years ago. We did a, uh, a show together on um, Tabitha Smiley's old program. Uh, and he was a very, very nice uh, individual. So it's a, a sad loss. Absolutely. And we appreciate you uh, sharing that with us, Ajamu. And I wanted to start today, uh, Ajamu, by talking about how these ruling class imperialists are going to mess around and get us all killed again, right? This time I'm speaking specifically of a U.S. House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who has embarked on her trip to Asia, which is set to include South Korea, Malaysia, Singapore, and Japan. And she has expressed an, a desire to visit Taiwan, something that, of course, would be viewed and is being viewed uh, as a, uh, a violation by the Chinese government, and in fact, something that could very well uh, trigger uh, a military response from China. I mean, here recently, Chinese Foreign uh, Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian told reporters, quote, we would like to tell the U.S. once again that China is standing by and the Chinese People's Liberation Army will never sit idly by. China will take resolute 
responses and strong countermeasures to defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity. Now, even Joe Biden has uh, sort of softly warned against uh, Pelosi doing this. I mean, he said uh, recently that, you know, the military doesn't think it's a good idea. You even see some ruling class uh, media platform sort of warning against it. But it also has support, you know, uh, certainly within uh, Congress and things like that. I mean, these people seem to not know or not care about the real implications of such a move. And given of how we saw how the U.S. and NATO, you know, manipulated the uh, uh, U.S. proxy war in Ukraine. I do not put it past Pelosi at all to actually do this. CNN is reporting that some unnamed Taiwanese government official uh, basically confirmed that uh, she would be expected to stay overnight in Taiwan. So we'll still have to see how it plays out, Ajamu. But uh, here we are yet again, uh, uh, sort of at the precipice of a, a World War Three type situation similar to the proxy war in Ukraine, which has the potential to trigger open conflict between the U.S. and Russia. And such a move here uh, could possibly trigger uh, a conflict between uh, the U.S. and China. And so I'm just wondering how you're sort of seeing how things are playing out at this point, Ajamu, uh, you know, as it seems that uh, yet again, we're at an inflection point. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question. It is um, it is quite perplexing um, U.S. policy. You know, it, it, this is one of those situations where uh, just a material analysis may not be adequate uh, because objectively one wonders what they believe they are, what advantage they believe that they are achieving and uh, uh, ratcheting up attentions uh, with China, uh, creating a situation where there could be, in fact, some kind of a direct military confrontation between the Chinese and the U.S. government, something even more uh, likely than what uh, has been unfolding in uh, Ukraine, just largely a, a proxy war between the Russians uh, and the uh, so-called collective West uh, under the guise of, of, of NATO to a certain extent. So it, it makes no sense. Um, it's not even a, 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 a useful diversion from Ukraine, from the debacle of Ukraine. The only thing that, the only way one can begin to understand this is some weird manifestation of the psychopathology of white supremacy. This, this, as the world is shifting under their feet, as power is shifting from the West to the East, as they are losing status and prestige in the world, they still have this this pathological need to to assert their their whiteness, their their dominance. Uh, they they need to uh, demonstrate to these non-European uh, elements that. You know, why it may seem like you are in the ascendancy, we still the boss, okay? And that was the attitude we saw at the very beginning of this Biden administration when they had that disastrous meeting uh, there in Alaska between the uh, the Chinese foreign uh, ministers and, and Anthony uh, Blinken and Jake Sullivan on the uh, Biden administration side, where it appeared that the objective of that meeting was to try to humiliate uh, uh, the, the Chinese representatives in public. Y you all remember that? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, 
it, it, it was incredible, but it, it seemed to reflect the kind of tone that they that they were going to try to uh, t- try to assume. They wanted to show that they could be tough too, uh, like maybe I guess the, the Trump administration. So, you know, this is a very very dangerous situation because the Chinese are not bluffing on this, and there is, and I'm, I'm following this very closely. There are elements in the U.S. foreign policy uh, community. Uh, that believe that uh, the Chinese are going to just make noises, but they're not going to do anything that, uh, quote-unquote, crazy, if you will. But what they're not taking into uh, account, uh, Sean and Jackie, is is being able to understand this from the point of view of the Chinese. You know, the, the, the memory of the 100-year uh, uh, humiliation uh, from 1840 to 1940 uh, by the Chinese as a result of the activities of the, of the white West and in particular uh, the, the, the British is still part of their, of their, of their culture, of their historical memory, if you will. They remember how they had to back down it, it with the last crisis in the Taiwan Straits back in 1995 because of their relative weakness, a time where uh, in, the 1995, in 1995, the the military budget of Taiwan was greater than the mainland. But that's not the situation today. And there's overwhelming popular support uh, on the mainland for the Chinese to not allow itself to be uh, humiliated, not to allow itself to be treated in an undignified fashion by uh, these Western powers. So it has automatically uh, created a situation that can easily escalate into some kind of some kind of confrontation that itself can escalate into something that is uncontrollable. And for what? You know, I said it, it, it has to be this, this non-material objective. I don't want to stay there with that. We have to, you know, look at it in other ways also. But it is it is the reflection of not only the immaturity of of current U.S. leadership, but a, a kind of of, of recklessness uh, and irrationality, almost a suicidal kind of, of of trajectory they seem to be on. You know that uh, is, is driving these these sort of irrational moves. It is really a uh, it's, it's kind of incredible. I mean, even though you can see from 1945 various moves made by the uh, U.S. and the West, you can see the folly of some of their of their uh, policies. But it wasn't really until the last almost 20 years that you you saw the ascendancy of irrationality, of counterproductive policies from the point of view of empire that has resulted really in the kind of self-harm that they have uh, uh, created for themselves that has, has, has undermined their ability to maintain their global hegemony. So it's, I know it's a long response, but it is really so many uh, uh, elements of this thing that, that I don't think people even understand the potential danger of it. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of elements to it, but I think this this particular incident, along with you know, what's been going on in Ukraine, the evil and unjust uh, U.S. 
EU and NATO proxy war in Ukraine, using Ukraine against Russia. These things, I think, have caused a lot more people to ask this question, Ajamu, which is is always prescient that we anti-imperialists try to answer. And that is, what exactly is the rules-based order that the United States is always, you know, trotting out? The U.S. government officials are always saying that they want other countries to adhere to the so-called rules-based order. But what we see the U.S. government and all of its uh, uh, allies and their representatives doing, particularly in, in the instances of, of uh, uh, things like uh, relations with China, is completely ignoring and even uh, violating the uh, uh, sovereignty of other nations as you point out, just to just to say we still in charge over here. So so, I mean, for people who are not quite clear what the rules based order is that the United States mean, what 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 exactly is that? Well, I'm glad you, you raised that question, uh, Jacqueline, because, you know, what in, in your as you were laying out that question, what you described and what it may have sound like to the listeners is that the U.S., may be involved in activities that are in contradiction to the so-called rules-based order. I'm of the opinion, I'm of the position that they are consistent. And what do I mean by that? Well, when they refer to these international rules-based order, they're not referring to international law. They're referring to a, a, a rules in which uh, they and their allies, but primarily the U.S., uh, will create or have created um, and their ability to uh, enforce uh, those rules. And, and this is reflective of, of the kind of, of a rogue state uh, status that they have uh, achieved in the process. They're not attempting to ground their, uh, their policies in international law or uh, the, the Charter of the United Nations. Uh, they they see the United Nations as an international law as a as, as a as a yoke uh, as a, a a fetter to their continued global hegemony. So you know we have to watch how they use language, um, and they have used language pretty successfully in this case to 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 sort of blur that distinction. So these activities of stealing the uh, current the foreign currency of various uh, governments, um, Venezuela, uh, under uh, imposing sanctions that are in violation of international law, um, these are some of the activities they have embraced and are utilizing this this outside framework of international law that people now. Uh, believe have some kind of, of legal basis, but they don't. So this is this is uh, a conscious decision that they have made uh, over the last uh, decade and a half uh, to to basically jettison the international order that was created that they helped create uh, coming out of of the Second Imperialist War in 1945, um, and have decided to operate outside of, of that framework. Uh, you know when. When states operate outside of the framework of international law, there's a term for that, uh, and that is uh, you become a rogue state. 
But rogue statism now is becoming normalized. Not only the activities we see with the U.S. and their Western European allies, but also with uh, with their with Israel. And so this is the this is the the, the this is the international uh, conditions or the international context uh, that we find ourselves in. One in which lawlessness uh, is now the norm. Yeah, definitely. And see. And that's why the language aspect is so important, Ajamu, because, I mean, if the U.S. were to admit, yes, we're being lawless. Yes, we are a rogue state. Yes, we believe ourselves to be exempt from the uh, dictates of international law. And since we are uh, uh, the world's imperialist hegemonic power, we can basically pick and choose what rules we decide to follow, and which ones we don't. And if we don't like the rules, we'll either, you know, use this power to uh, uh, basically uh, bludgeon uh, uh, other entities to get our way, or we'll just sort of make up a new rule. You know what I mean? And so the implication, even in the language of uh, international rules-based order, is that anyone who goes against that, which I suppose is uh, sort of decided on the word of the United States, is uh, out of order and they're breaking the rules and they must be uh, uh, intact. Now, there doesn't seem to be a ton of um, interrogation into, you know, just who put these rules together, what they are exactly and, you know, what body, if any, is, is deciding that this is even something that the real international community is interested in. But even in just looking at the uh, the war in Ukraine about how the U.S was talking in terms of the international community and and what they were thinking in terms of uh, uh, Russia's invasion and how they were saying one thing. But in truth, even if we look at sort of, uh, you know, certain U.N. votes or uh, the pronouncements from governments like uh, India or South Africa or more recently in, in Uganda that goes against uh, what uh, Washington was really saying, well, then it's clear that, uh, you know, that picture is a lot more complicated than that they were uh, uh, letting on. And it wasn't the truth. It wasn't the case that, you know, uh, uh, the, the real international communities, this broad coalition of countries was somehow in the same camp of the U.S. But I think this goes to show how important hypocrisy is to the maintenance of imperialism, because there's no way that imperialism would be able to go uncontested so much by uh, broad swaths of the public if imperialism was honest about its aims. And so, you know, it's dishonest then about its aims. It talks in terms of humanitarian intervention and protecting democracy and human rights and all these things that sound great. But in truth, we know that the U.S. has historically and continues to violate all these things and much, much more on a regular basis. And so when we talk about the propaganda, this uh, ruling class propaganda, that uh, the American people's consciousness is bombarded with on a constant basis, Sajamu. I mean, it all just seems part and parcel of the broader project of protecting an imperialism that knows it wouldn't be able to stand if its true motivations were revealed. Exactly. Exactly. And and, when, and, and I would like for us to, to dig into a little bit on this issue of hypocrisy, because uh, I, I, I take the position that it's not necessarily hypocrisy, but is a reflection of the of the uh, psychosis of white supremacists or the white supremacist mentality. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch Steady C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. 
any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Ajamu Baraka. And Ajamu, I'm really glad you're on today because obviously the FBI and local, as in Florida police, raiding the offices and the personal private properties. I mean, it's amazing that, you know, this country loves private property and protects it with police until they they claim they have a reason to raid people's private property. Uh, in uh, Florida this past Friday, the FBI executed multiple raids against the uh, African People's Socialist Party's Uhuru House in St. Petersburg, their uh, Uhuru Solidarity Center in St. Louis, Missouri, and the private residence of uh, the APSP's chairman, Omali Yeshitela, uh, that's also in St. Louis. And the Black Alliance for Peace has uh, issued a uh, statement uh, condemning the FBI raids. And I'm wondering if you can speak some more uh, to this particular issue, which looks and feels and smells like to me, McCarthyism 2022, only I'm calling it Bidenism because guess whose administration it's all happening under. And I think it also raises a, re- a few really good questions that we need to address about the the infiltration of the left by folks who are working on behalf of imperialism by kind of, you know, being trying to be anti-Russia. It, it's 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 another one of those very complex situations that I don't think people are looking at clearly and from the lens of history. And I'm hoping you can clear this up for us. Well, I, I will speak to this. And, and but it's, it, as you say, it's very complicated and, and it's going to require a lot of continued study and struggle. Uh, I think the raids on on Friday was, in fact, a sort of a logical outcome of a uh, trajectory of repression that uh, really began to emerge. Well, I'm going to say this: that it, it, it's we, we try to warn people that this uh, uh, Russian gate, uh, this move that was being made by uh, by neoliberals who control the uh, U.S. Uh, capitalist state uh, was a very dangerous development because uh, it was uh, systematically um, re- reducing the the areas of 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 of, of in which you know legitimate so-called legitimate uh, uh, exercise of people's rights were 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 able to be expressed that that the commitment to liberal values of, of free speech and, and association uh, was being undermined in this crazed obsession that they had with Trump uh, and the alleged uh, influences coming from, from Russia. Well, because the, the target was Trump and, and everybody hated Trump, of course, um, individuals and, and groups that normally would have been more uh, attuned to the expanding powers of the state, uh, they, they 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 turned a blind a blind eye, 
And when, you know, this this current situation with this war in Ukraine uh, yeah, developed, uh, the public was largely conditioned to uh, to accept more or less almost anything that was coming from the from the state. And when I say the state, let me make sure. I, 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 let me clarify something. You know, they have made a distinction between uh, uh, you know themselves, that is the the, the capitalist state, uh, and the corporate media, uh, for example. Um, but I include the uh, corporate capitalist media as part of the ideological apparatus of the state. And, and, and don't get uh, confused by the fact that the, cor- the corporate media is privately owned. It, it, as to me, it's a distinction that doesn't really matter. But basically, these elements are part, have now, now, now been incorporated into the state. And, and there's, no, uh, uh, there's no, no space between uh, the formal state uh, elements or apparatus and these corporate entities. So anyway, so using and working through the uh, uh, media, uh, working through big tech, um, you have they have created a, a, a condition um, in which uh, repression has been normalized. And we try to explain to people that while you all are fixated on, on, on Trump and, and your uh, clownish understanding of neo-fascism, uh, where while fascism was being uh, developed uh, in a very specific way by uh, by the neoliberal right, uh, you were also helping to provide to create a condition in which, you know, when that repression becomes even more acute, the the elements that will find themselves in the crosshairs first will be those elements from the Black Liberation Movement, from the Black Radical Movement. And that if you are really allies, you would understand that uh, and be more careful in your in your public proclamations uh, and in your positions. But that didn't happen. And as we we, we warned people, uh, this uh, these raids on Friday was the uh, Biden administration's uh, uh, logical sort of uh, 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 activity from. Uh, they're concerned with so-called black identity extremists under the Obama administration. This was manifested now in, in policy. And so this is the first, I think, opening uh, assault on uh, the black movement. Um, and, you know, what's what kind of uh, interesting, kind of amusing, if we weren't so serious, is that you have a, a lot of elements among the, the white element, white uh, white left that uh, trying to keep their, their, their heads down and that's saying much about this, thinking that they're going to uh, escape uh, the repressive apparatus, and, and they aren't. So, yeah, this is a very dangerous development that uh, started in, on, on Friday, and it's now over. Because uh, it's not clear how wide they want to throw this, this, this net of trying to uh, make a connection between opposition to uh, to Ukraine, opposition to the uh, U.S. imperialist uh, positions, um, uh, and Russia, you know, uh, are, are you know are, are put in place because the the objective is to is to intimidate people into silence uh, and into non uh, opposition. Yeah, and if folks remember, uh, really the first 
known person to get caught up in this whole issue of uh, so-called black identity extremism, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, was a man named uh, Rakim Balligan, who back in uh, 2018 actually had his apartment raided uh, by authorities, you know, with flashbang grenades and tactical uh, gear and all those sorts of things. I mean, they forced uh, him and his 15-year-old son, uh, you know, outside on the ground uh, in only their underwear. Uh, this was in uh, Dallas, you know what I mean? And, and this was over Facebook posts, you know what I mean? And so th this is how flimsy uh, a lot of this thing is. You know, the state doesn't need seemingly that much, really, of uh, any kind of legitimate reason to uh, uh, enact this kind of terror. And also, you know, it, when you were talking to John, it also made me think about how even nominally left elements in the United States uh, are still susceptible to imperialist propaganda. And I think that connects to what Jackie was mentioning earlier. Like there's this trend of uh, left Russophobia, if we want to call it that. And so these are people who consider themselves progressive, socialists, communists, radicals, revolutionaries, whatever, and what have you. But their thinking on Russia is, you know, indistinguishable from the State Department or from uh, the White House. You know what I mean? And uh, I also tend to think, and I've said this before, is that when it comes to issues like this, uh, speaking about uh, Russia and Ukraine, that... Um, it, it, it's a fundamental lack of understanding around what imperialism is that I think undergirds a, a lot of this as well. And so it, it's a multifaceted sort of thing, as we're pointing out. But I feel like situations like this sort of help to highlight a lot of the issues and deficiencies and frankly, political backwardness of a lot of folks nominally on the left in the United States. And I think we're sort of quickly reaching a point where that kind of ignorance can be downright dangerous as the state continues to tamp down. And so as such, having clarity around these questions of what is uh, imperialism, what does it really mean to be anti-imperialist and all these sorts of things. And of course, there's no substitute for just knowing the history of this state repression. It's going to become uh, uh, increasingly critical as things continue to intensify. You're absolutely right, uh, Sean. And, and, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, we have that kind of confusion among left elements in the United States and in, and in Western Europe. Um, you know, the, the, some elements have taken upon themselves to uh, help to root out uh, so-called Russian uh, 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 influence among the left. Uh, we're not sure who assigned them that responsibility, but they uh, have done that and and have done that with with great enthusiasm. And that that's that's is is unfortunate. It's dangerous, but it's reflective of the kind of of corruption. And confusion that we have among left forces in the U.S. and left forces that have that have, have, have disconnected themselves or been disconnected uh, from a a, a a a working class mass base. So you have all of these petty bourgeois elements coming off the college campuses, um, you know, uh, pretending to be uh, wanted to be uh, uh, radicals, uh, but they have not rooted out have not expunged from their own consciousness the kind of liberalism that they've been exposed to for most of their lives and the kind of, of national chauvinism that, 
they that they still uh, they're still a part of of who they are, uh, and so you have you know uh, these left forces that are basically will will find it very easy for them to find a way in which they will find they will be on the same side uh, with with imperialism. Uh, they will they were and they were justified uh, in theoretical terms. Um, and 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 so you you find yourself wasting a lot of time trying to uh, 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 deal with these elements as opposed to what we have to be doing, which is building a viable uh, and authentic left opposition here uh, in this country. Now, what that means, though, also at some point we have to really start dealing with some of these elements because they are, they they still are quite dangerous, uh, even though many of them are primarily uh, Facebook warriors, but. You know, that constant uh, critique and criticism uh, is, it has, has helped to undermine and to disarm uh, left opposition at a, at a critical moment, left opposition uh, to, uh, to this, the, the warmongering that we see that is so much a part of, of U.S. policy. Uh, so they, they're playing a role in, 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 in spreading confusion, and we have to uh, you know, call them out. Uh, sooner or later, I saw a uh, tweet from from one of them, you know, talking about how he basically has taken it, taken on the responsibility to uh, root out uh, 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 within the so-called left in the U.S. those 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 people who are influenced by or in fact are Kremlin agents. And again, it's so incredibly dangerous when you use those kind of smear labels. You know, just recently, Jackie was part of a, a listserv conversation uh, in which uh, this show was uh, was 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 attacked uh, as you know having some kind of a, uh, the same kind of character, and they didn't seem to understand the young people who were doing that how dangerous that was. You to reduce, uh, you know, uh, uh, Africans and other left forces. Who don't uh, uh, toe the line of imperialism? Uh, you're going to suggest that the only reason why we have have uh, the positions we have is because of, of, of propaganda coming from the Kremlin? I mean, it's so it's so ignorant. But that's where we are at this point. Yeah, it's ignorant. It's racist. Like that. Like that. That's literally the 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 line of J. Edgar Hoover who, you know, thought that uh, black folks in this country were just, you know, dupes and puppets of uh, uh, Russia because, I mean, of course, Hoover himself was a racist, so he figured black folks weren't smart enough to want to advocate uh, on their own. And so some foreign European force had to be a part of it. I mean, this is why uh, uh, the socialist and communist elements were purged, you know, from uh, the civil rights movement and things like this. You know, I'm thinking of people like Jack O'Dell and, uh, uh, and folks like that. And, you know, certainly when we look at how, you know, revolutionary uh, elements and organizations have had, you know, deep involvement with some of the most consequential issues of the time, whether it's the Scottsboro Boys or uh, what have you. Well, then, you know, we see why the state feels uh, this insistence. But that same that that kernel, that narrative is still there when people make this argument, because you are literally saying that uh, uh, black folks are sort of unwittingly or maybe even uh, purposefully 
doing the bidding of Russia because we don't have the sense God gave a billy goat to know that we're oppressed and want to do something about it. And you know, the funny thing about people who direct that kind of garbage at by any means necessary, if you notice, they never actually give you like an example uh, of us you know, supposedly acting as Kremlin agents, like whatever, like, like whatever that means. Like, I, like I always wonder, like, do people think that, I don't know, we periodically go have a meetings in one of those Kremlin buildings with the little twisty tops and we're in there with uh, Vladimir Putin and Sergei Lavrov and they're just dictating to us what we have to say uh, on the show or, you know, I don't know, we'll be tossing a work camp or something like, like, I don't know what they think happens, but it's 100% clear that uh, they don't actually listen to the show uh, or they wouldn't have that impression. And I always feel for Jackie because she deals with this stuff like a lot more than I have to, but this is the time that we're in and it's not new. And Ajamu, you you raised a couple of really important points that I want to get to on the other side of our break here around national chauvinism and class contradictions within some of these same elements that, that that's pushing these narratives. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Ajamu Baraka is here. And Ajamu, I wanted to swing back to some really good points you made a moment ago about not only the national chauvinism that some nominally left elements show when it comes to things like this, but also the class contradictions. Because I think you're so right about how, you know, the main voices that we've seen propagating these things, they don't have any base. They're not rooted in uh, working class communities, be they black or otherwise. And look, I'll tell you one thing that, you know, talking with comrades and organizer friends uh, uh, who are actually in discussion and conversation with communities. I mean, what people are talking about is how, you know, they can't um, uh, they can't believe that 40 billion dollars more or whatever is going to Ukraine when prices are rising, housing is rising, uh, uh, everything that we need is getting more and more expensive. And yet this government is taking our money and putting it to this war effort. And so people, these people are literally out of touch with uh, the material concerns of the working class. And I dare say, and, you know, uh, I imagine this isn't the case 100 percent of the time, but I dare say that a lot of these elements are these individuals who have platforms, whether it's on social media or some other thing, because, you know, on social media, you can say anything. You can call yourself anything you want. You can call yourself a revolutionary, a socialist, an anti-imperialist, an abolitionist. Oh, man, you can be every good thing there is on social media where there's no one to hold you accountable and where you don't have to actually know or prove or work on anything uh, to be able to have this profile or be able to call yourself this. But, but I'm telling you, 
crisis, moments of crisis always really show what it is. I think that COVID has shown us that. I think that uh, the war in Ukraine has shown us that, is that when the rubber meets the road, and despite all that mess that people be typing about, uh, we get to see what it really is. But I, I was hoping you would get more before I get off to a rain here, Jamu. Uh, I was hoping you could dig more into this issue of the class contradictions and the national chauvinism that is still present within some of these elements. And I mean, number one, like how is that the case and how do you think we, we struggle against this sort of thing? Well, I mean, you know, you, you touched on a number of the, of, of the elements. I mean, I mean, what you described in fact is, is part of the problem is that we have, uh, we have individuals who are, who have no base, and no intention of being a part of any kind of organization uh, who have built platforms for themselves and they become experts on uh, revolutionary strategy uh, in the U.S. and really a- around the world. Uh, but then we also have organizations of people who are in organizations uh, who are uh, struggling to try to uh, ground themselves um, uh, in, in community, uh, in, in, in the class, um, and it, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's an effort because the state has been so effective in separating uh, the masses from, from organization and, uh, and, and, and being able to um, uh, remove from the potential of, of, of developing revolutionaries individuals from our, our ranks into, for example, the nonprofit sector. Um, so they have been quite successful in, in, in tactically being able to uh, ensure that the, the organizations that we build remain relatively weak. Uh, they make uh, uh, the NGO sector uh, attractive uh, for young folks who do acquire certain kinds of skills that could be of value to our people uh, instead of them making the, the, the sacrifices that have to be made to ground themselves in building uh, organizations from the bottom up. Uh, they instead will, you know, find themselves in the NGO sector, uh, within that in the corporate sector. Uh, so we have all these sort of um, uh, political and structural kinds of, of things we have to overcome. But as you said, you know, the, the objective, the, the developing objective realities are such where some of those elements will be filtered out especially when we talk about these uh, Facebook warriors and social media revolutionaries, as the state is demonstrating that they've been at play uh, and that, uh, you know, they are prepared to engage in naked repression. Uh, these elements will, will begin to fall to the wayside. Uh, and what will be left will be uh, our particular formations, what we have uh, internal processes of developing a cadre, uh, what we have ways of knowing how to uh, resist the repression from, from the state, while we simultaneously uh, build uh, build and expand our bases, um, you know, we are going to uh, re- remain in place and that could be able to repress all of us. So there will be a sort of filtering out process. But, you know, at the same time, we can't underestimate the ability of the state uh, to u- utilize its, its ideological apparatus to keep us confused. Um, and as we were saying earlier, we talked we talk about Ukraine and even the situation with uh, Taiwan, you know, using uh, 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 patriotism, 
Uh, you have these left uh, uh, opportunists and chauvinists uh, who will make uh, uh, left sounding arguments uh, to justify uh, alignment with the with the bourgeois with the bourgeoisie. And so the only way we root that out is we have to confront it. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I take a self-criticism uh, myself for that, for being somewhat liberal with some elements uh, out there that uh, need, need to be called out. Uh, because, I, you know, I was hoping that some of these folks would, would develop, that, uh, that, you know, get grounded in something, but um, that hasn't happened. And they're becoming quite dangerous as a consequence. So, you know, we have to intensify this ideological struggle because, um, you know, as long as we allow for those kinds of elements to confuse uh, the people, it makes our job uh, more difficult in terms of trying to build effective uh, revolutionary opposition. Yeah, you know, and and one of the kinds of elements that you you touched on a little bit before the break uh, that that I think is a good example of is this person, Eric Dreitzer, uh, who I guess was a, an author for Counterpunch. And Counterpunch is, a you know, a pretty legitimate so-called left publication. Right. But this person said on Twitter that he spent the last seven years discussing how Russian disinfo and operatives have successfully p- penetrated segments of the left in the U.S. under the auspices of, and he put it in quotation marks, anti-imperialism, as if we're not actual real anti-imperialists and he's the one who is the real anti-imperialist and anti-war politics. And then he says, now the guy who, Alexander Ionov, the one who is uh, named in these ridiculous indictments from the Justice Department uh, and the reason that the FBI raided uh, the Uhuru properties. He says, now the guy who literally stole my website on behalf of FSB has been indicted. Now, I don't know that there's just so much mess in that Ajamu. But I think this is the perfect example of one of those kind of chauvinistic leftist forces that has aligned itself with the 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 very imperialist uh, pro state Russiagate narrative. And, and as you said, has taken it upon themselves to be the one that roots out the influence of Russia among left circles and decides that he's decided for himself who is an actual anti-imperialist and who is a puppet of Russia. And somehow that's just the job he's given himself over the past seven years. And now he's he's capitalizing on this bogus indictment uh, handed down by the Department of Justice against Alexander Ionov that's been used to carry out this violent repression against black radicals. And I, I, I just I think this throws uh, uh, so many left publications that have been involved in this kind of trolling the actual anti-imperialist left uh, into a lot of question. And, and I do think that these are the kinds of, of people that we do need to, I, I agree with you, I think that we do need to stop being liberal with, with these type of folks, um, because clearly they've, they've just gone full state and there's not a lot we can do with them except to avoid them. This whole idea, because you hear this a lot, this idea of like Russia infiltrating the left. Mm. Why? <laughs> Literally, 
Why would the Russian government have any interest in infiltrating the U.S. left? It's small. It's disorganized. Like, literally, what do they have to gain from that? Like, this is just like, I just feel like the most basic questions aren't uh, uh, brought up when people have these narratives. But, but I didn't want to jump in there, Jamu. Go ahead. No, no, no. But you, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is, and, and I think that unfortunately he represents uh, that, 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 that tendency uh, in, in the country where he has taken upon himself or someone has assigned him that responsibility uh, to, to at least raise those kinds of questions about the so-called infiltration of, of, of Russia. And they don't realize not only how dangerous that is, but how how easy it is for them to be to be to be used by the state uh, to to undermine uh, uh, political opposition. I mean, they are doing the the ideological dirty work of the state um, for free, and so this 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 tendency has to be has to be dealt with because you know we see the consequences of it. On Friday, with this raid uh, by the FBI, and with more raids that are probably going to occur. Why? Because the the, the commitment of the state to uh, to global hegemony uh, and using a, a military first strategy also requires the complete um, uh, surrendering of critical faculties uh, and and oppositional politics among the public. So even though you write, uh, uh, Sean, that the left is still relatively weak and disorganized because of the objective material conditions of people suffering um, and people uh, uh, raising critical questions like, why is it that uh, they have spent, they, have, they tell us that we can't even get a bill back better piece of legislation, uh, but they can, they can send uh, $55 billion to, uh, to Ukraine, and today they are authorizing another uh, $500 million. Uh, why is it that you know there's no money, but yet the Congress can pass a $840 billion a Pentagon uh, uh, bill? Uh, you know they're making in, they, they're making connections and raising questions. You know when they can't find a way to pay their rent, when they can't afford to to buy food, and now reducing their their nutritional needs down to one meal a day. You know, so the potential of real social instability is such where the the the, the right or the right. Uh, the, the capitalist state is moving to preempt any opposition. And so, you know, this, this repression is, is, is necessary. And who do you target first? You target that sector of the population that traditionally has always been in opposition, has been the most effective in um, uh, anti-capitalist politics. Uh, and you make an example of that sector. and You cow everybody else into silence. Uh, or cooperation. Uh, but you know what? They struck a rock on this one because not only do you have a resistance coming from the uh, African People's Socialist Party, uh, but from um, a, a number of left and other revolutionary forces that say, we're not going to be intimidated. That basically, we understand our potential power. We understand that these objective conditions are such that you know, with its real potentiality there in us building a more effective working class based uh, national liberation and anti capitalist movement here in this country. 
you know, and we're going to do it no matter what you attempt to try to do this to undermine that. So, you know, this, 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 all this goes to is the, the, the intensifying class uh, and ideological struggle that has to be waged. And people like Eric uh, and Bill Fletcher and, and, and these kind of elements that find themselves justifying NATO uh, and align themselves with the uh, U.S. bourgeoisie and, 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 and giving some, some, some uh, support uh, to a, a, a pro-American uh, left patriotism, uh, they're going to be swept into the dustbins of history. Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. And, you know, uh, I, I think you're right. And it reminds me of, you know, the attack that uh, uh, Black Lives Matter came under when they published what was basically a good position on Cuba in July of last year amid the protests in that country or how, you know, elements of the DSA get attacked for having like a good position on Russia vis-a-vis the war in Ukraine. I mean, the fact that uh, the fact that these uh, elements, we see them attacked by these uh, uh, ruling class institution and figures, I think does uh, speak to uh, a certain fear of that uh, a politic becoming more and more uh, popular. Otherwise, I think it would be ignored. And I really appreciate what you said, uh, 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 Ajamu, in terms of these people doing the ideological dirty work of imperialism. That's so true. And I think I think we have to sort of have some real clarity around that, because what I see a lot, particularly online, is, you know, whenever these kinds of things come up, people say, oh, you know, th- this is a psyop or blah, 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 or this, you know, that person's a bod or, you know, they must be with the police or the FBI or the CIA. I mean, these are some pretty uh, serious accusations. What I think is more likely the case is precisely what we've been laying out in our conversation this hour is that all of these different institutions of the, the U.S. capitalist imperialist state have been colluding and inspiring for years and years and years to uh, seed really the popular consciousness in general of this country. And I think the the left movement is a part of that with these kinds of thinkings and narratives so that you don't have to be, you don't have to be getting a check from the CIA or the FBI um, to, to, to say these things or any real direction because they're already sort of deeply embedded in your thinking because of our indoctrination in this country. And so uh, when we talk about this ideological work, that is so crucial and so important. And another reason why we have to vigorously resist this anti-intellectual strain in some elements uh, uh, of the movement or, you know, this this uh, apprehension, I think some people feel towards uh, uh, having a real concrete ideology. Now, in the case of some folks, you know, I understand, you know, maybe they're newer to things. And so they kind of use broader labels before they get a better sense of where they are politically. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who sort of live in this uh, political gray area where their principles seem to shift depending on where popular opinion goes as opposed to just having a set of principles and sticking through them through whatever may come. You know what I mean? And so, you know, as we've been saying, you know, as things continue to get worse, particularly materially here in the United States, that will and always has a signal to kind of uptick in a political oppression, excuse me, repression that we can expect to see uh, more and more and more and all these sorts of things. But the only thing that I think can protect us from this 
is being rooted in organizations, being rooted in movements, and uh, above all else, being rooted amongst our class. Because we should always remember what it is that we're actually trying to do. We are literally trying to overturn this capitalist system in this country and around the world and bring about a socialist system that speaks to the needs of poor, working, and oppressed people. And we're not going to be able to do that being disorganized and all these sorts of things. We have to be united. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thank you, Jamu Baraka, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.